0: Well, church, I have uh, good news for you this morning. Uh, This week's reading in the Bible and unfolding grace is all good news. Like, there's no tragic stories, no horrendous events, no crazy sin uh, that is dealt with. It's all good news from uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5 to chapter 8. Like, after the death of King Saul, David is acknowledged as king over all of Israel. Like his throne is firmly established in Jerusalem and his enemies are all defeated. Like we read in uh, chapter five of 2 Samuel, David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, literally the God of heavenly armies was with him. And a couple verses later we read that David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. So David knew two things. He knew that he was king because God had placed him there and he had placed them there for the good of his people, Israel. And then in chapter six, we read two amazing kind of back-to-back stories. Like each of these stories could be a sermon in themselves. Like at first we read the story of Uzzah and the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, many of y'all know that story. It's just a great story. Like the Ark of the Covenant, the, the, uh, the golden ornate box that housed the tablets of the Ten Commandments and the staff of Aaron and some of the original manna, this golden box that represented the very presence of God for Israel is on its way to be brought into Jerusalem, finally. But they've made a mistake, they're moving it on an ox cart. Like the Kohathites, a a tribal group of a family of the Levites were given strict instruction in the law how to move the ark, but Uzzah, a Kohathite, isn't obeying the law. He's moving it on an ox cart. It says twice that it's a new ox cart, as if that makes a difference, right? Like they're supposed to carry it on staffs for Levites are supposed to move this thing. And so when they get near Jerusalem, it tips a little bit like the... The ox cart tips, and just kind of spontaneously, like not thinking, I'm sure, Uzzah puts up his hand to steady the ark. And the passage says that the anger of God flares, and God kills him. Like, like it's intense. Like, in, in fact, like David is angry, probably with himself, and he's afraid. Like, why would God do this? Like, I love what uh, R.C. Sproul writes in his book, The Holiness of God. He writes, Uzzah thought that his hand was less polluted than the dirt. Like, what was Uzzah's problem? Uzzah was a a sinner. He was commanded not, not to touch the holy things of God, and yet he thought that his hand was a better alternative than the ark touching the dirt. The dirt wasn't doing anything wrong. Like the dirt was just sitting there being dirt. Like the dirt was obeying the voice of God. When it rained, it turned to mud. When it got cold, it turned hard. But Uzzah, the sinner, touched the ark of God and he was no more. Like, like I said, I could preach a whole sermon just on that. Maybe I would talk about how we shouldn't touch the ark. Like we shouldn't touch the holy things of God. We should not change what God has established firmly in his word. Like we don't negotiate with God or change his rules. God has spoken, don't touch the holy things. I mean, guys, that would preach. But that's not my sermon today. Like the next story, you have David, now three months later moving the ark into Jerusalem. Like they take a few steps and they sacrifice. David is singing and dancing before the Lord, dressed in a linen ephod like a priest, worshiping God as they bring in the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Like he's dancing like mightily before the Lord and then when all is said and done and the tabernacle is set up and the Ark is in the Holy of Holies, he goes to his palace and his wife, Michael, This he calls her the daughter of Saul, says to him, How honorable the king looked today, shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls, like any vulgar person might do. Now, David wasn't being vulgar. David wasn't exposing himself. She is speaking like in the ultimate snark, right? Like in an ultimate hyperbole, she's saying, You made a fool of yourself. You're the king. Where's your dignity? But in her statement, Michael completely missed the point. David wasn't dancing as a king, David was dancing before his king. See, David knew that there's a king over Israel, and I'm only a stand in. And he was dancing before the Lord. And so maybe I would say something like, does the posture of your worship match the greatness of your king? Guys, that'll preach, but that's not my sermon today. Instead, my sermon is in chapter seven. You can turn there in your Bible, Second Samuel chapter seven. This is one of the most significant chapters in all of the Bible. Like this chapter moves the narrative of God's unfolding grace forward in a major way. In fact, one commentator says, there are few passages in the entire Bible more important and more exciting than 2 Samuel 7 and yet the excitement isn't in God striking people dead or miraculous events. It's all in a conversation between David and a prophet and the prophet and God and then that prophet again with David. Can I just say that uh, what we read in this chapter is so significant that it would be very difficult to make sense of the New Testament without it. It would be very difficult to understand the gospel writers if you did not know this promise. Like the promise that God makes in 2 Samuel Seven is still shaping history today. And yet it begins with David on his throne. The Ark of the Covenant finally in Jerusalem and the nation at peace. Like you get this strong feeling that they think they finally arrived. This is it. Like, this is what God said. This is what he promised. Like, we would, be, have, we would have peace from our enemies. Like, we would be a nation shining for Yahweh. We have arrived. And then you read in verse 1, And when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Like you get the idea that David is in his throne room and he looks out the window and he sees the tabernacle of God and he sees the holy of holies. And by then the tabernacle was several hundred years old. It was travel worn. It had seen better days. And David sees what he believes to be a great contradiction Like I'm living in this opulent palace, this house of cedar, and God's ark is in a tent. And so he just says this in passing to Nathan, and Nathan says to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. I mean, that advice feels right, right? Doesn't it? Like if we were in the middle of a building campaign as a church and you came up and you said, God has really laid it on my heart. Like I really want to do something extraordinary. I'm not gonna say, hey, hold on, man. Don't get crazy. Nathan's the same way. He's like, hey, David's the king. He's a man after God's own heart. If anyone can trust their heart, it's David. And yet this was not what God wanted him to do. I mean, it was a common practice of the day, by the way, when a king would defeat his enemies and establish his throne. He would build a temple for his God. If it was a long battle, with, a long war with many battles, he may set up a temple in every city, like you get a temple, and you get a temple, and you get a temple, and so maybe for David, building a temple was like his crowning achievement. Like we're done, we've arrived. Like it's here. But you see, Yahweh is not some false idol that you buy off with temples. He doesn't have some sort of give and take relationship with the nation of Israel. Like God is the one who sets the agenda for his people, not the other way around. And so in verse four it says, but that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, before he wasn't speaking the word of the Lord, he was just speaking what seemed to be common sense. It felt right. And God tells him, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Will you build me a house to dwell in? You? Like you're gonna build me a house. See up to this point, David has been called the king three different times in the previous verses but from this place forward he is called my servant because he's a servant of the true king that's not an emotion by the way because the only people in the Bible up to this point who have the title from God himself my servant are Abraham Moses and Caleb and so David is in very good company but the Lord says to him are you Like the emphasis here is on the pronouns. Are you gonna build me a house? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought you up, uh, brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why did you not build me a house of cedar? That's God's way of saying, hey, help me out here, David. You know, maybe maybe I'm missing something, but I can't remember ever asking for you to build me a house of cedar. I mean, maybe it's just maybe it's just gone somewhere. I mean, but I am, you know, God, all, all knowing, nothing really escapes me. Like, when did I ask you to build me a house? Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, not even leading them, not even shepherding them. Like he just paints this picture of David as just this boy. I took you from the pasture, you're just following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off your enemies from before you. David, you are who you are because of me. This isn't give and take. This isn't a 50-50 arrangement. And so David, by the way, I'm not done yet. I'm not done building my kingdom. I'm not done with the nation of Israel and I'm not done with you. You haven't arrived, this isn't it. I will make you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And just as a note, from this point forward, the language God uses is the language of covenant. In fact, it's the same language that God used with Abraham when he talks about seed and when he talks about a kingdom and when he talks about a name and when he talks about peace. I will make you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. The violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed the judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. David, are you gonna build me a house? I'm gonna build a home for all of Israel. Like David, do you, I mean, do you really think this is the best I can do? Like you're in a house of cedar? Like in a kingdom still surrounded by enemies even though they're afraid of you? Is this really, like do you really think this is the best I can do? Do you really think that this is the kingdom that I've been talking about? Like do you really think that this is the shalom, the peace that I have promised is this your Sabbath rest? Like, is this the restoration of all things promised to your mother Eve? David, not this, not this, but this. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. David, <laughs> David, are you gonna build me a house? No, no, no. I'm gonna build you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, you shall, they, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David, you wanna build me a house? I'm gonna build you a dynasty. Like God promises David that one of his sons will follow him as king of Israel and that he will build the temple. In fact, this is the last mention of a temple in 2 Samuel. From this port, place forward, it's not mentioned at all because God has bigger things in store for his people. And so for David to have a son to follow him on the throne and even to build a temple for him is encouraging, Sure. But is it unexpected? Like, don't princes follow kings? Like, if I'm the firstborn of David's line, when he dies, I'm gonna be the king. That's how it works. And sure, he gets to build a temple, but that's okay. I mean, that's, it's not unexpected. What's unexpected is the last word that God throws in. He says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Forever. In fact, we know, we know that this is the word that caught David off guard because later, he repeats it over and over and over again. Like God's saying, David, this is bigger than you. It's bigger than a temple. Now many prophecies in scripture have a dual, like a, a, a dual fulfillment, a dual meaning Like there's an immediate fulfillment and then there is the ultimate fulfillment. Like this promise here, this prophecy points to Solomon but it also points through Solomon. Through Solomon to the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren of David and Solomon, all the kings of Judah in the household of David but it even points through them to a final king who would come, who would be a direct descendant of David. In fact, he would be born in David's hometown, Bethlehem. Both his stepfather and his mother are from the line of King David. He would be the one to build a real temple for God and he would reign forever. David goes on to say, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. David, I'm gonna adopt your son into my family and treat him just like a dad would. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. And we see this in the life of Solomon and we see it in the other kings after him. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away from before you. David, there's no plan B. Like your descendants will never, ever be cut off. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So David, the son of David will reign forever. He will defeat the last enemy Death itself and he will be the one who will bring true shalom to my people. Now David's hearing this and it's too much for him to take in. But fast forward a thousand years and there's somebody who gets it completely. It's the angel Gabriel who says to Mary, do not be afraid. Mary for you have found favor with God and behold you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Guys, with this covenant that God cuts with David, God's saving purposes were now focused on a king, an anointed one, a Messiah who was to come, who would rule in a way that would bring perfect justice and whose kingdom would never end. So David is the crucial link between a promise made to Abraham and the fulfillment in Jesus the son of Abraham, the son of David. And so it ends in verse 17, in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. And I'm sure David would say, wow, (laughs) like are you kidding me? I was just gonna build you a house and you've made this promise That there would be one from my own line who will rule forever? Who will bring perfect peace? Like this is bar none the most significant event ever in the life of David. This promise that God makes. I love what John Woodhouse writes of it. He says that the golden thread that holds the whole Bible together, the central message that makes sense of all the details is this. God has promised. God has promised. You're here today because God is a God who makes and keeps promises. You lift your voice in singing because God is a God worth praising because he makes and he keeps his promises. The Bible is valuable for a wealth of information it contains about many things, but the Bible is of ultimate worth because it is God, in it, God makes his promise. And faith is believing God's promise. Unless you see that everything in the Bible is related to God's promise, we miss the point. Once we believe God's promise, the Bible comes to life Because we read and listen to grow in our knowledge of the God who promises. And so how should you respond, if you're David, to a promise that grand, that great, that over the top? Like David shows us. In fact, as we read David's prayer, I just want to read through his prayer. As we read that prayer, I want you to note the repetition of a a few things. First, note the repetition of David like giving his new title. He calls himself God's servant 10 times in this short prayer. And eight different times in this prayer, he calls God by the title, Lord God, Yahweh Adonai. And then he uses the word over and over and over again, forever, because once again, that's really what caught his attention. Then King David went in, probably to the tabernacle, from his palace, and he sat before the Lord, and he said, who am I, O Lord God? Who am I, Lord Yahweh? I mean, both words, Adonai and Yahweh are translated in the, from the Hebrew into the word Lord, one with all caps, Yahweh, the other with just one cap at the beginning. That word means my Lord, Lord, my master, Lord, my Lord, King. Who am I, O Lord God, my King? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet? This was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. Remember, it started in the palace, David probably peering out the window and thinking, this is it. Like all the nations around us are shivering with fear. They know that there is a God in Israel. We have peace. We have God's king on the throne. We have the tabernacle, the holy of holies, the sacrifices. And yet, now he realizes this is just a... Man, this is just a small thing. A small thing in God's eyes. You ain't seen nothing yet. Like you do not even understand what God is about to do. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O oh Lord God. This promise is bigger than me. It's literally Torah, Ha-adam. It is the Torah for mankind. It is the truth for every nation. This is the promise for everyone. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Like David is stunned and speechless. He doesn't know where to go from here. But he prays, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you and there is no God besides you according to all that, you have, all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom, whose God went to redeem and be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people, Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O oh Lord, became their God. And now, O oh Lord God, and here's David's one prayer request in the midst of all this praise, he only asked God for one thing. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying the Lord of hosts, is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. So, what does David pray? God, do what you said. Do what you just promised me. I don't know about you that it almost sounds kind of disrespectful, right? I mean, God has just revealed to David, this guy who's gonna build him a house of cedar, that he instead is gonna build a dynasty, and at the end of that dynasty will be a king who reigns for eternity. And David says, yeah, uh, do that. (laughs) Like David's somehow doubting God's promise, but actually it's just the opposite. Like David is praying back the promise of God because he believes it that much. Like he's showing us how we ought to pray and how we should respond to the promises of God because faith is believing God's promise. And so let David's prayer be a model for your own prayer. Like he's simply responding to what he heard and what he believed I love verse 27. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Like, God, you're the one who told me this. I would have never guessed this in a million years. You had to reveal it to me through your prophet. Therefore, because of your promise, your servant has found courage, literally, has found the heart to pray this prayer to you. I love what Charles Spurgeon writes about this. He says, The best praying man is the man who is most believingly familiar with the promises of God. After all, prayer is nothing but taking God's promises to him and saying to him, Do as thou hast said. Prayer is the promise utilized. A prayer which is not based on a promise has no true foundation. Guys, prayer is holding fast to God's promises. That's what prayer is. In fact, this pattern of asking God for what He has already promised is repeated over and over and over again in Scripture. Like we've already read it when we saw Moses pleading with God not to wipe out Israel because of their wickedness. And how does he plead with him? He reminds God of what he had promised to Abraham. Lord, remember your promise. And so God relents and doesn't destroy Israel. Like later, we'll read that Daniel, when he was in captivity in Babylon, was sitting and reading the book of Jeremiah, and he reads in Jeremiah's prophecy that God had promised 70 years, 70 years, until his people are restored and he's doing the math and he's adding it up and he's like, we're almost there. God, do what you promised in Jeremiah. Like the Puritan, William Gurnall writes this. He says, prayer is nothing but the promise reversed or God's word turned inside out and formed into an argument and, a, and retorted back again upon God by faith. You see, prayer is holding fast to God's promises, but prayer is also holding God to what he has promised. Like the promises of God should shape the way that you pray. Like our prayer should be shaped by a concern, like for God's glory and for the advance of this kingdom that he promised to David. I mean, that's how David prays. Like when he understands that there's something greater than just him, something grander than just building a temple, he prays and he holds God to his word. Like David is showing us that, hear this, the more familiar we are with the promises of God and the more concerned we are with the honor of God, the more confident we will be in prayer like the more familiar you are with the promises of God, like open your Bible and read them, understand them within their context and pray those back to God. The more that we are concerned with the honor of God, that his name be exalted among the nations, the more confident we will be when we pray. So how should we pray? Learn what God has promised his children and just pray that. Like this week, uh, just yesterday, my, my son, Bo, uh, uh, who him and his wife are living with us while he finishes up seminary, uh, we have noticed, my wife told me that his phone is dying all the time, or his wife's phone is dying all the time because they only have one iPhone cord. And this has gone on for weeks. Like one of their phones is always dying. And so he's never asked for an iPhone cord. He never went and bought one. He didn't know that I had a whole bag full of them. And so yesterday I went out to our back patio with two iPhone cords and just handed them to him and said, you have not because you ask not. (laughs) See guys, I think that's true of us. Like there are so many promises that God has made to us. We need to pray those back to God. Like write these down, James 1.5. James 1.5 promises that God will give us wisdom if we just ask for it. Now the context of James 1 is when you encounter trials of various kinds. However, this promise is not limited by that context. If you need wisdom, ask. Like guys, this was my prayer all through college. God, I have no idea what I'm doing. Lord, I was not a good student in high school. I just goofed off. Like, I don't know how to study. I don't know what to study. There's so much, so many classes. I'm overwhelmed. God, give me wisdom. I'm going to put in the work, but show me what I need to focus on. Show me where I need to get my attention. Help me study what I need to study. Father, you said that if any lack wisdom, all they need to do is ask, and you'll give it to them. God, give me wisdom. Or 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. It promises that no temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear, but with every temptation will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Father, you promised, you promised that no temptation is gonna take me down, that you always have a way out. If I just ask and look for it, God, show me the way of escape. Help me stand under this temptation and be faithful. Father, you said, Hebrews 13, five promises that he will never leave us or forsake us. Lord, you said that you'll never leave me or forsake me and yet I feel alone right now. God, help me to believe what is true, not my emotions. God, I declare that I know that you are with me and you will never leave me or forsake me. I believe that. God, help me experience it. Or Philippians 1, 6, which promises that God will complete the good work that he began in each of us. Father, please do that. Like, move me forward. Help me grow. Help me be the man you want me to be. You said that you would. God, complete your work in me. Or 2 Peter 1.3, which promises that he has already given us everything we need for life and godliness. God, I don't need any more tricks. I don't need anything out there. I just need you and you've already given me everything I need. So God, show me where I'm not utilizing what you've given me. Whether it's through friends or through your word or in worship or in the gathering of the church, God, show me what I need to like, fully grow to be a disciple. Or Philippians 4.19 that says that he promises to meet all of our needs. Father, when I look at my checkbook, this verse doesn't seem right. But I'm gonna trust you. I trust that you will meet all of my needs just like you promised. And God, help me to adjust my needs to match your values. Or Romans 8, 38 and 39, that promises that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Father, I'm holding on to this promise because I've sinned. And I know that I wouldn't take me back. Why would you? God, thank you that nothing in all creation can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Our 1 John 1, 9 promises that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Pray, God, forgive me. You promised. Or Matthew 11, 28 and 29 that promises that Jesus will give rest to all who come to him. Jesus, I desperately need what you promised here. Or Romans 9, that promises, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So, Believer, when you doubt and when you struggle, God, I don't feel saved. But I know that I have confessed with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and I believed in my heart that you have raised him from the dead. I know that I've asked him to be my Savior and Lord. I need to hold on to that. And then finally, maybe this is a good place for all of us to start. Let's bow our heads. God, we thank you that you have made a promise that if we just call on you that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We thank you for that promise. And we thank you for dozens and hundreds and thousands more that we can pray back to you. God, not to try to hold your feet to the fire, but to express that we trust your word. God, you said this stuff and we want to see you do it. You said this stuff and we want to see it true in our life. We thank you that you will never leave us or forsake us and that one day for those who have placed their trust in you, you will welcome us into that perfect kingdom to experience true shalom. We pray in Jesus' name.